0: Come this evening to consider Psalm 20, Psalm 20. And as you can see, and as I've mentioned, uh, as you can see from the bulletin, our theme for this evening in this Psalm is before the battle, before the battle. I wonder if you ever received one of those birthday cards that tells you all about the year in which you were born. Uh, Usually it's for the milestone birthdays, 30, 40, 50. Uh, I remember when I turned 30, I got a couple of cards telling me all about Uh, What life was like in the United Kingdom 30 years ago, the year I was born, rather. And there were facts on it, like who was top of the football league, or how much a loaf of bread cost, what song was number one in the charts, and those sorts of things. Uh, And those cards also tend to include some information about maybe who the Prime Minister was, or what was happening in the royal family at that juncture, certainly for those of us who live in the United Kingdom. Uh, and we do often tend to do that. We we connect the general mood of the nation, or what was, uh, or the general mood of the nation rather, with perhaps what was going on in the lives of our leaders or our rulers. And if things are a bit uh, anxious or difficult for them, it tends to be remembered as a bit of a difficult time for the whole nation. Some of you will remember that in 1992, the Queen uh, dubbed the the, f- the months that had just gone by her Anna Sfora. Horribilis. <laughs> hard to say, horribilis, Latin for horrible year, a horrible year because of several tragic events and scandalous events that had afflicted the royal family. And so generally speaking, there is this felt connection between national leaders and their people. And as we look back over history, we, we tend to remember our history based on what was going on with them. You might say, as it goes with a king or a queen so it goes with the people. And that's what we see in Psalm 20. An important connection between the king and his people. As I've said, Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 go hand in hand. Psalm 20 is a battle cry. It is asking for God's help before the battle. Psalm 21 is a victory song. Giving thanks that the battle uh, has been won and that God has delivered his people. And so tonight in Psalm 20 we're imagining ourselves in the ranks of King David's soldiers waiting for the king's command to advance. Sam talks about setting up our banners uh, and maybe you've seen pages from history books or you've seen some of those war movies set hundreds of years ago where there were banners, flags and uh, and big sort of These big banners flowing down that they would carry into battle. And so this psalm is gearing up for battle. And you were to feel some of the nervous energy and tension of that kind of moment in this psalm. You can picture the eyes of everyone looking to their king as he straps his sword on his thigh and takes his shield on his arm and prepares to march out to battle. You may be thinking, well that sounds very interesting, but what has that got to do with my life today? None of us will be strapping on swords or shields tomorrow, unless we're uh, playing uh, make-believe or something. Uh, And we don't follow any human kings in the way that is described in this psalm. But if you're a Christian today, there are two abiding principles from this psalm that do still apply to us. Two things that we can learn from this battlefield and this battle cry in Psalm 20. First thing that we see in this Psalm this evening is worship before warfare. Worship before warfare. Uh, More than half this Psalm, verses one to five, is a prayer, as many of the Psalms are, but it's not a private prayer of David. It's a prayer prayed or intended to be prayed by all the king's people. It's a public prayer and it's part of public worship before the battle. Look at the language of verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And all throughout the psalm, that word you is masculine singular. So it's not you as in you the people, it's you the king. All throughout the psalm, they say in verse 1 that may the God of Jacob protect you. And of course, mention of Jacob harkens back to the covenant promises of the Old Testament. Jacob, one of the patriarchs of the nation and a man who himself experienced the protection of God. Having been a sly and selfish man when he was younger, over the course of his life, uh, God, if you like, chipped off his rough edges. He came to rely completely on the God of Israel. Uh, Jacob says in Genesis 35, 3, having spent those years in exile, hiding from his brother Esau, he says, God has answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And the psalm here hearkens back to that and is saying that just as God protected Jacob, so we pray he will protect our king and the nation with him. Verse 2 shows an expectancy that God will send help. It says God will send help from his sanctuary, from Zion and Jerusalem and the tabernacle in David's day, the temple as it became later. Uh, Is what is being envisaged here. And Jerusalem and the temple, of course, were a visible sign to God's people that He was with them in a unique way, that His presence and His blessing was specially upon the nation. And so there is expectancy in these prayers that God will be with their King, that He will help them in their time of need. He says in verse 3 May He remember all your offerings. And regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. As I said earlier, this, this is a prayer intended for the end of public worship. King David and the good kings, at least, who came after him, they all did this. Before they went to war, they would have offered sacrifices. They, the priests would have led the worship and they would have sought God's help in prayer. And they would have offered up sacrifices to God in worship. They would have confessed their sins. They were admitting their dependency upon God. uh, Realizing, recognizing, publicly saying that there was no point in them going to the battlefield. Unless God was going to deliver them. And so before the battle, the king and his people worshipped. They expressed their trust in God to deliver them from their enemies. Look what he says in verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. They're saying we we hope that God will bring you back so that we'll be able to praise him again and give thanks that he has answered our prayers. And because there has been worship, people expect there to be salvation, deliverance, rescue. So here's a prayer, friend, showing us the close connection between a king and his people. Here are the king's people uh, 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 committing their king into the hands of God, worshipping before warfare, praying for their king to be victorious, knowing that if their king is victorious, they also will be victorious. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the nation. And in the era of King David, the people understood that perhaps better than we appreciate today. Remember what happened on the day that David fought Goliath before he even was the king of Israel. But remember the terms that Goliath laid down. 1 Samuel 17 verse 9, when he challenged uh, the Israelite army, Goliath said, uh, If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, Then you shall be our servants and serve us. And we perhaps tend to overlook uh, as we think about that famous story that had David lost, had Israel lost, then they would have been slaves of the Philistines. Uh, the, The defeat of just one man against Goliath would have been the defeat of the whole nation. But instead, because David got the victory over Goliath, the whole nation experienced victory over the Philistines. And that's how it was for the rest of David's career as well. Every victory that he won as king of Israel was a victory that his people could share in. That they celebrated. As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. Well, we're not the nation of Israel, as I said. We don't march on the battlefields of the sort described here anymore. But of course, we do have a king, friends, who has already marched on to a battlefield. The Lord Jesus Christ. We don't pray today hoping that our great king will be able to win a victory for us. We pray knowing that he already has. Listen to the words of Revelation 5 verse 5. One of the elders said to me weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. The greater David has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And as we thought several months ago now, when we studied those words, John is realizing in his vision there that this lamb, though slain, is victorious. He is standing. He is triumphant. And so this song, friends, of hope for a king's victory, it is fulfilled in Christ, the Lamb of God, the King of Israel, the Son of God. Of David. He sweated blood. On his battlefield. He prayed earnestly. On the battlefield. He took up his cross on the battlefield. And he has left the battlefield. Victorious. Some of the. The may we's. In this psalm. Some of the. uh, the, The prayers for what might happen in the future. For what the people want to happen. They're now we do's. Uh, let me, if, what I mean is. If you look at verse 5. The people say. May we shout for joy over your salvation. Well as Christians. We do shout for joy. For the salvation that our king has given to us. We've done nothing to earn it. We've sent our king to the battlefield. Uh, for in our place. And he has won us the victory. As it goes with the king. So it goes with the people. Christ victory. Over Satan and sin and death is our victory. But there are other applications of this psalm as well, because, of course, as Christians, we know that though Christ has won the war, uh, the battles go on. The well used illustration we're living between D Day and V E Day. And as the church on earth waits for the triumphant return of King Jesus, we still face battles. And so we can still pray some of the prayers of Psalm 20 for ourselves and for one another. It's fitting that before we engage in another week of spiritual warfare, before another week of battles, that we are here to worship. Worship before warfare. We're met together to pray together, to offer sacrifices of praise together. Some of you are about to do battle again this week. Maybe with illness and the challenges that come with it. And we can pray this evening, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Some of you are perhaps doing battle with worry or anxiety of some kind. And Satan will tempt you to become completely overwhelmed by those anxieties. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support From Zion. Some of you will seek to share the gospel with friends or colleagues. Or be a witness to teammates or classmates. May he remember all your offerings. And regard with favour your burnt sacrifices. Your worship. Your dedicating of yourself to him. Friends by being in the place of worship today. We will be better prepared for the warfare of the week ahead. And that's, uh, what I mean by that, of course, is not that coming here is some kind of lucky charm because we come to a particular building or because we do particular things. It certainly doesn't mean that we're going to be kept free from trouble uh, in the days to come. But worship nonetheless is good preparation for warfare. As we fix our eyes again upon our King and upon all that he has done for us and upon the help that he promises for us, And that's one of the reasons why not just coming here on the Lord's day. But daily going to the Lord in prayer is so important. Charles Spurgeon says "Troubles troubles roll like thunder. But the believer's prayer will be heard above the storm. He says nothing can give such strength to a saint. As waiting upon God in the assemblies of his people. It strengthens us. It prepares us. To go out into battle if we have been in the place of prayer and worship beforehand. That's why our weekly corporate worship is so important. So important for us to be here at every opportunity as far as we're able. And it's important also that we're holding our own personal worship each day and our daily family worship as well. So that we're taking time to fix our gaze upon our King Christians are drifting in this post-COVID world. The evidence of that is very clear. It's right on our doorstep. The growing number of churches without two services in the Lord's Day. Some churches even having to consider closure. Because people simply haven't come back. For believers who still belong to those churches that are depriving them of more opportunities to meet together, they're not being prepared for spiritual warfare. Individual Christian living only gets us so far. The Christian life is communal. We're to worship together, pray together, contend together, prepare for weekly battles together. Lifting, lifting our gaze as we do so. Under our victorious king. So, worship before warfare is the first principle of this psalm. But the second and final principle to take out of this psalm is confidence in the covenant God. Confidence in the covenant God. Look at verse 6. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Anointed is another word for Messiah or Christ. As it is in the New Testament. Uh, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven. With the saving might of his right hand. Some commentators suggest that. The voice of the psalm if you like now. Is is no longer the people. The people up until this point. Are the ones praying for the king. Some commentators suggest that this is now the king. Speaking back to his people. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. Uh, Notice how the king speaks of. This great victory as if it's already happened. Again, this is before the battle. But look at the confidence that the king has uh, in verse 6. He will answer from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. This is great confidence. This is assurance in the God who has just been worshipped. That he is the God who is able to help. That he will hear and answer the prayers of his people. Goes further in verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that phrase, the name of the Lord our God, it appears a couple of times strategically in the psalm. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. Horses and chariots were cutting edge battlefield technology in the ancient world. Uh, Maybe some of you have an interest in military history and you'll be aware of the various uh, advanced, advances in technology in, in more recent times. Things like uh, the introduction of the tank or aerial warfare or drones or the nuclear arms race. All those things changing completely the face of, of battlefield tactics. In the ancient world it was horses and chariots. Imagine one army that has horses and chariots. Advancing against another army that doesn't. Just men standing there on the battlefield. Well who's going to win that? One writer says that the Egyptians used to worship the various parts of a chariot as they put them together. So as they're assembling their chariot and uh, putting on the wheels and putting the seat in place and so on. They offered up perhaps little prayers of worship to their gods. That was uh, how much the Egyptians cherished and trusted in their chariots. The interesting thing is that for God's people, the Israelites, God expressly forbid or forbade, I'm never quite sure of that, that word. He forbid or forbade the kingdom of Israel to accumulate horses and chariots. Israel wasn't allowed to gather up hundreds and thousands of chariots. Deuteronomy seventeen sixteen. this is part of God's commandments for any king that might reign over Israel. He says he must not acquire many horses for himself. Or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. If you don't have a lot of horses, you can't have any chariots either. What God was teaching his people was the path to success ultimately does not lie in having cutting-edge military technology. You're a different nation. You're a holy nation. Your confidence rests not in your means of Warfare or your plans for the battlefield, your confidence is to be in me, your covenant God. One writer says, it was fundamental to the faith of the Hebrews that success in battle depended primarily upon God, not upon military planning and strategy. And there's still this attitude today, we assume that to have the latest and to have the best is guaranteed success. And yet, if you look through human history, you'll see that having the latest and the best doesn't always guarantee success. Not for every single battle, at least. By 1941, the United States had manufactured thousands and thousands of of top-of-the-range fighter planes, knowing that sooner or later they were going to have to enter World War II. And so they designed and built these amazing planes, the like of which had never been seen But in December 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbour, many of those fighter planes were parked neatly beside each other next to the runway with no ammunition in them. Guess what the Japanese targeted, uh, one of their first targets was when they attacked Pearl Harbour. Many of those fighter planes were blown to bits before the pilots could ever even fly them. Having the latest and the best doesn't always guarantee victory. And indeed, over and over again in the Bible, we see the pride of man being undone by the power of God. Mentioned how the Egyptians worshipped their chariots. What happened when Pharaoh sent his beloved chariots into the Red Sea after the Israelites? Exodus 14.25, God clogged their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. The best chariots and horses in the world weren't able to chase down a bunch of refugees, men and women and children, as they ran away from their enemies because God intervened. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What are you tempted to trust in before you turn to God? What are the horses and chariots? Of our lives. If we feel overwhelmed, if we feel like the church is weak and lacks the power of the world, if we just feel like we're there for the taking in a culture showing increasing hatred for us, then we feel exactly the same as the Israelites felt in the Red Sea, the way they felt when they had to set about conquering the promised land, the way they felt as they looked at Goliath. But is our trust, our confidence in the name of the Lord our God. As you prepare to do warfare again this week, maybe it feels like an army of horses and chariots are about to charge at you. Maybe you feel like your battles are lost before they even begin. Maybe you just feel weak, physically or spiritually, or both, and unable to go on. Well the Apostle Paul said in Second Corinthians twelve, ten, When I am weak then I am strong. Because it's only when we realize our weakness that we throw ourselves upon the strength that God provides. David says here in verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed, his king, his, his chosen one. He will answer from his holy heaven. And similarly, fellow Christian, Jesus Christ says to us today, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We can always pour out our hearts to him and ask for the strength that we need in the heat of spiritual battle. And may we do that, friends, instead of trusting in whatever it is else we're tempted to trust in, whatever it is we're tempted to try before we go to the place of prayer. Perhaps sometimes God even keeps us from certain achievements or from certain positions or possessions Because we would rely too much on them. Ultimately relying on ourselves. Instead of placing our trust in Christ. Too often and too easily we define ourselves by whatever job we have. However much money we earn. How good we look. How respected we are. God and his word tells us no. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. Listen to what he said to his people in Deuteronomy 20 verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies. And see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own. You shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you. Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He says in verse 4. The Lord your God goes with you to fight against your enemies. To give you the victory. What wonderful words friends. Those are to remember. Don't neglect the book of Deuteronomy. There are gems and pearls like that in it for us. Just notice here in Psalm 20 verse 8. Speaking of the enemies. They collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. And that ultimately will be true of all of us. When King Jesus returns. And his victory is made known. And he sends out his angels, as we thought about this morning, to gather all the nations before him for judgment. We will still be standing. We will enjoy everlasting life. We will celebrate victory, not because of our achievements or because we raised a a perfect family or because of how we compare with other people, because of the Lord God who gave us the victory in Christ. And so as a new week begins, it's good that we've engaged in worship. Before we engage in warfare. And we can have confidence. Because the Lord saves his anointed. Even in the face of whatever chariots and horses. Satan might have lined up against us this week. Are you among those today who says. Some trust in chariots. And some in horses. But we trust. In the name of the Lord our God. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. as we close. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.